Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast, powered by the Henderson Brewing Company, a locally owned, award-winning neighborhood brewery that celebrates Toronto's stories and culture. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Bob Nicholson. Initially trained as a chartered accountant, Bob has spent a career working as a senior executive in the world of professional sports. In an 18-year career with the Toronto Blue Jays, Bob proved to be a winner in both the boardroom and on the field, with the Blue Jays setting attendance records of four-plus million fans in four consecutive years, and more importantly, winning two back-to-back World Series championships in 1992 and 1993. Bob was also the chief financial officer of the Montreal Expos in the early 2000s, working with Major League Baseball to sell the franchise and relocate it to Washington, D.C., ultimately finalizing the sale of the newly rebranded Washington Nationals and their new stadium. Bob also had two successful stints in the boardroom for our Toronto Argonauts of the Canadian Football League and was part of a total three Grey Cup championship winning seasons for our city. In 2016, Bob pivoted to education and has since served as the Chief Operating Officer for Holy Trinity School, a co-ed independent K-12 school in the city of Richmond Hill, which also happens to be the worldwide headquarters for this podcast. Welcome, Bob, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? I'm doing very well, Andrew. Thank you for inviting me here today. It's wonderful to have a chance to chat. Um, I am, I'm not, I'm working out of home today, so I thought I'd carry the podcast from here, but uh, heading back to the school this afternoon. And where is home these days? What part of the town are you in? Uh, we're in Stouffville, Ontario. We've been here about uh, 12 years now. It's a beautiful community and uh, rapidly growing like the rest of the GTA. Yes. Well, on that note, I am pleased to inform you, Bob, that there is an elite subset of the Toronto Legends known as the York Region Legends. And this because, as I mentioned, the podcast is headquartered here in the city of Richmond Hill. You are now enshrined with previous York Region Legends, including music publicist Eric Alper out of Richmond Hill, Alan Frew from Glass Tiger at a new market, and Elvis Stoiko, who you may know has an arena named after him right here in Richmond Hill. So you're in good company. I am in good company. Thank you for allowing me to join such a steam company. <laughs> That's fantastic. Let's go all the way back and get the Bob Nicholson story. Where were you born and describe your upbringing? Well, I was. I grew up in North York uh, for the most part of my life. Was uh, went to school uh, locally there, and then in George Vanier Secondary School in uh, in over in the Don Mills area. So, kind of spent my time in Toronto. Ended up going down to the University of Toronto as well, so I've kind of been sort of sort of located here in the community for most of my life, um, and a passionate sports fan of the Toronto Toronto clubs as I grew up, of course. So. Well, now you got me super excited, Bob, because when you mentioned Willowdale, which I think is uh, you're, we're going to have yes. to clarify for everybody. Yes. That's that's a postal district. I I grew up in Victoria Park and Van Horn. Where were oh, you? I was Bayview and Finch area in Willowdale. Okay, well, we we traveled in uh, similar circles because if you went to Vanier, I was at uh, Zion Heights and A.Y. Jackson. And uh, if uh, growing up where I know you did, you'll probably be familiar with uh, good old John Anderson hamburgers. And uh, <laughs> I don't know where your hangouts were, but what 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 do you remember about growing up? Were you an athlete or an academic or what your uh, school days like? Some would say neither, but uh, I guess I probably... <laughs> Uh, probably, I'm not sure I'd be an academic. I was a good student growing up, but I was certainly passionate about sports and, and, uh, participated more on a, 
I wouldn't say I'm in a lot of school teams, but I, I didn't really take it to the to the university level at all. I played football growing up and and loved the game and was a big fan of the Toronto Argonauts growing up. They were sort of my team from my early teens onwards. Um, obviously a Leaf fan. I got to enjoy in my early years, you know, three Stanley Cup wins in the space of about four years. So uh, I felt kind of, I felt it was almost too too easy being a Toronto Maple Leaf fan back in the 60s. But uh, I'm sure that's not the case for people. Well, it's not the case for people growing up these days. They've had a long time, a long wait for the next the next Stanley Cup win. But uh, certainly in, in enjoyed following the teams. And, and so I was always passionate about that. Always loved being part of sports. Had a group of friends that you know we shared that passion and as, as we went through school together and uh, still maintain those friendships so I, I feel like a connection to uh, a lot of people from the willowdale area if you want to call it <laughs> yes shout out to willowdale well two things jump out at me bob one was just what you mentioned you were so used to the leafs winning championships as you say three in four years you must have thought you know we'll just catch the next one if i can't get this parade and here we are. This, this I, I'm really, I'm really putting a, a bullseye on my on my back for mentioning <laughs> this. But as in the late '60s, I'm always a big fan of the underdogs. And so in those days, the Boston Bruins were the underdogs, and they had just drafted a, a guy that same became famous a few years later, Bobby Orr. And so <laughs> Bobby and Phil Esposito and the big bad Bruins of the of the late '60s, early '70s were a team that I, I followed and supported. And so it's my any Bruin allegiance these days, you have to be very quiet about that in the Toronto marketplace. So. <laughs> yes, you do. And the other thing that jumped out to me is your recollections of being an Argos fan, and, and I too. I remember distinctly going to Toronto Argonauts games at Exhibition Stadium. I mean, I'm going to say 50,000 people. Of course, the Raptors didn't exist. The uh, the soccer didn't exist. But they were the, after the Leafs, they were the biggest thing in town. And I mean, I, I, I don't think people today can appreciate how important the Argos were back then. Yeah, I think at the time, you know, when you had the original six in hockey, we didn't have the same international exposure to sports teams and to leagues. Uh, as we do, as we did, as really starting in the eight, well, in the late seventies with the, with the Blue Jays, but uh, no, I I was I was a passionate one of those guys that had to get the the media guide every year. My my father got his season tickets back when I was about thirteen, and I became a. Uh, I would go to every game. I would get the media guide at the beginning of the year. I'd, I'd read through everything. I'd every player memorized. We'd go and sometimes visit training camp and see them practice, and it was. It was huge, and, and the and the CFL in those days certainly rivaled the NFL, certainly through the '60s and into the early '70s, and it was kind of the the TV product. Obviously, in the NFL that started to turn it around and and really separate them, the two leagues, to to the point that they are at today. And I guess it was Monday Night Football is probably one of those sort of properties that kind of really launched the NFL in terms of becoming a, a massive media property. But yeah, no, I stayed a big fan of the Argos. They were probably kept, it was hard being a fan of the Argos in the seventies. They were, <laughs> they were tough, tough team to follow. Um, but then I kind of got back connected with them really when I came, joined the Jays and they were playing out of the Stame stadium and in the exhibition stadium, but I was fairly busy with my career at that time. But Honestly, it was. Uh, I, I still followed them. They finally won a great cup after thirty-one after a, a drought of thirty-one years in in the in the early eighties, and then I really found that I think it really is when the Jays started to take off in the early eighties, and certainly when they won the division in eighty-five, that that really kind of started to see the downward spiral of uh, of interest in 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 the CFL in this city. Anyways, and it's, and it's been a challenge ever since. Yeah, well, there's so many competing properties now in this city. I think what's very interesting about you, Bob, is, as you mentioned, you went to University of Toronto, you got your BCom, and then you started, I guess, your career, Coopers and Librand, you became a chartered accountant. How did you transition 
into the Toronto Blue Jays? Well, it's sort of, um, I always say it's it's just sometimes the certain one door closes, another one opens. In this case, I was very passionate about getting involved in the airline industry. And, and I had been pursuing actively. Uh, I never envisioned I was going to stick around the accounting firm, but I wanted to take the skills uh, and that credentials from that experience to elevate myself into a different role. And I had been chasing the airline industry for ages. And I got this opportunity to work, um, applied for a job with Ward Air back in the day, a big, you know, a very classy, first class charter service. And uh, the job I wanted, I didn't get, but they they liked me and they offered me another job. And I and I had to say it was not quite what I wanted. And then I was trying to trade off my passion to get involved in the airline sector for for the opportunity to uh, or or to versus you know where my career might take me. And I really struggled. It was one of the hardest decisions I've had in my life, and I finally turned them down. I think the people involved were quite shocked because they knew how passionate I was. Um, and I'd end up telling our audit partner at the time, and I'd spent some time with him asking him about what he thought. And I think he tried to give me counsel uh, and suggested, listen, I'll keep my eyes open for you uh, going forward if you really want to move on. And he just happened to be the audit partner for the Toronto Blue Jays. And so about a year later, uh, an opportunity came up where Paul Beeson at the time was the VP of administration. Um, Peter Bavese, who'd been the president, left. Paul's role had uh, enhanced. Paul and Pat Gillick had their roles were enhanced. Uh, Peter Hardy from Labatt's chair came in and took over as kind of the chair. But these two were running one business, one baseball, and Paul needed to backfill with some with some financial uh, strength, bench strength, and and so I was very fortunate that you know, I got interviewed and got taken that job. And I, as I say, it was so close and never never happening. It's, it's just a lot of things in life, and uh, so it was it was. How I kind of stumbled into it, if you want to call it that, as it's like stumbled into the into the industry that I ended up working for twenty five plus years in. So it was, a, I, I'm very fortunate about it, and it was a, it was a wonderful, it was a great turn of events for me. Well, it's a, it's a dream come true in the sense I'm very jealous, Bob. I, I like you. I was very into business and entrepreneurship, and when I was in school, I said, well. If you're going to do it, do business with sports. Why sell chocolate bars when you could work in sports? In fact, my Zion Heights uh, yearbook, the aspirational quote with my picture says, "I'm going to, if I'm going to be an accountant, I'm going to be an accountant for the Blue Jays." For uh-huh. me, just a dream. I ended up selling chocolate bars. You ended up living the dream. You were able to combine business with sports, so you now get involved. Now, if I'm not mistaken, Paul Beeston, he was the first employee of the Jays. Is that correct? Yes, Paul was the first employee of the Jays, um, and he himself, coming out of Coopers and Lybrand, had been had uh, worked in the London office, had been involved in the tax side. He'd been there probably an extra year or two at the firm than I had been, um, but you know, it was a, brought an enormous, a big, bigger than bigger than life personality to uh, to an, um, to the job as well. So Paul was a, a, he and I don't quite know that you know he and Howie Starkman were some of the early guys and. George Holm and some of these people. So there's a select group that I was never part of and never got to be part of the startup, but came in six years after the fact. So it was got sort of still sought in its fairly young days. And those days, really, the whole business of sports, uh, so to speak, never really existed. It was just it was just something that that's, you know, none of these schools. Well, I think maybe with one exception, maybe Laurentian was offering a sports program. Very few other ones were offering any sort of sports administration. Now it's pretty well across the board any school you look at somebody's got that type of program to offer but yeah paul was uh paul's been a great influence in in my life and uh and it was and it asserted still kind of for me the face of the toronto blue jays he and pat in terms of what they did to build the franchise to 
that's to where it is to well, not to where it is today, but certainly very responsible for where it is today. Well, certainly you were part of, and therefore such an incredible time with the Toronto Blue Jays. We've got on the on the field, of course, these back-to-back world championships, but we've also got from the business side, if you will, the move from Exhibition Stadium to Sky Dome and the, I guess, the marketplace for salaries just exploded. I, I'll let you lead on, on kind of what you want to talk about first, but there's so many areas I'd love to hear about, but certainly the stadium transition would be one I'd be interested in knowing more about. Yeah, that was that was quite an interesting time to have to move in the middle of a season. But you know, the the obviously the construction and the designs around building a stadium and those have been going on for quite some time. And of course, like every construction project, always difficult to land at exactly when you want it to finish. Uh, so that became a challenge that it spilled over into a, into a new season. But I think one of the amazing things, you know, we talk about the four million people, which was an incredible incredible feat for our organization, but putting Putting forty thousand people at a time into into Exhibition Stadium was was truly probably one of the greater achievements. I'll never get totally appreciated. It was a challenging, and I look back now, and I kind of you know I had looked back at pictures recently of this of the stadium uh, in its baseball configuration, sort of an aerial shot of it, and how how awkward it was, and how you know we'd fill the grandstands that had to be about a hundred yards behind the wall, basically at an odd angle. And we were selling those. Now, admittedly, we we're selling them for you know four dollars a ticket, and, and usually at a discount to the supermarket for two dollars. But still, it was you were filling the seats there. Um, even even the grand, even the this you know we didn't we barely had enough good seats between the bases, and we had no real real really sweets to speak of. Uh, a few of them, a uh, handful, I think six or seven, whatever the number was. And and it really was quite incredible that we were able to you know to achieve the kind of numbers we did into two two point seven million in attendance I think numbers like that uh, that were really for given the nature of the stadium was really challenging, but it was a start and as as most people we got our foot in the door similar to what the Raptors had to live in Skydome for a few years and so everybody's had a, their challenging starts and 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 we certainly did, um, but it was building the game and you know and and Paul always used to say that. That, that Gillick was his director of marketing effectively because really once it was success on the field it really sold sold a uh, sold it and obviously that bit more than that and we obviously had to sell the players and, and build personalities and get connect the fans to their to the players but really it was uh it was seeing that and seeing that growth and the, the success and I was very fortunate to come in in 82 and that really was the first year that the team had just shown success in the second half of the of the season. And then we went on for an 11 season run with, you know, 500 plus seasons for 11 years in a row. But that was sort of the turning point. So I got, got very fortunate to kind of not suffer through some of the tough days at the beginning. You know, the first season exciting, but some of those seasons right after that were, I'm sure, a bit challenging for people working there. But, you know, we're a very passionate group of, of employees that I, I had the pleasure of working with. I think that's what I really enjoyed about working in sports is that people, as as you've as you've already mentioned, you know, wanting to be in the game, be involved, and so and to see and to be part of that, I think it really just made everybody want to love bring come to come to work, love coming to work, and that all just reflected in the fun that we had. And we were all fairly young in those days, a little, a little bit older these days, but back in those <laughs> days, we were a young bunch of people, and uh, and we had fun with it, and and so it's great to see it grow. The difficult, you know, then trying to see this new stadium and plan for that was was a sort of sort of another job on top of your day job, trying to get that ready. And, and so the lease that, and the discussions and obviously all the work that went outside of our organization as well to build it uh, was was incredible. And 
uh, really put Toronto on the map when we built when that stadium was was built and and a lot of great things came out of that as you know I mean not just the World Series but I think the All Star Game was sort of the launch for us and probably that should have been a World Series year as well losing <laughs> anyways, uh, well we, had, we should have had three in a row but anyway, we lost we didn't we didn't win that one that's just the way it works hey I'll I'll take the two Bob uh, you know the stadium world-class, state-of-the-art. I don't know if this shocks you or not, but here we are, I think, 30 years later, and they're talking about it like it's an ancient relic, It needs, and it is being heavily renovated. What's your reaction to that? Is, is it time for something new, or are you a little shocked that uh, the state-of-the-art Skydome is already ready for the heap, so to speak? I, you know, it, it uh, well, it certainly makes me feel a hell of a lot older, I'll tell you that much. Anyway. <laughs> um no, I, I, you know, I, I get that the, there's a constant, you know, it's a different, it's a different sports fan. There's a different desire for experiences. And so there's always, you know, and I, and I, I believe Rogers is really trying to do the best they can with the footprint to, uh, because to tear it down and build it over, just, it, I struggle with that. Um, not, not just from a point of view of that it's, it should, it should be more relevant than it is, but just our, capacity to want to tear things down and build them up again at some point we can't continue to do that i think as a society first of all but i remember looking at some old stadiums back when we were ourselves looking around and you seeing some of the kind of old football stadiums that were the baseball teams were playing in and you know and seeing cincinnati and some of these other and then seeing them build their new stadiums and uh and suddenly having a different experience and so we we got the benefit of that certainly 89 in late 89 you can see the French, the teams even coming after us in the early 90s, all the buildings that got built. I, you like to think, especially when we always felt, or at least Rob Robbie thought that the dome was going to be the next best thing that he that, that that technology he had for a roof that really only got, I believe, put into one other stadium and then people came up with a different solution. So there will always be that better mousetrap, if you want to call it, I guess. And so yeah. um, I think the same thing here that, you know, that's just continuing to try to adapt the stadium to the uh, the wants and wishes of the of the fan base and what they experience um, the level of competition for eyeballs now is is way beyond what we experienced in the 90s when we put four million people in the building yeah it's amazing what you're competing with well let me put you on the spot the renovations Rogers is doing is buying certainly a few more years but it seems inevitable there'll be a new stadium for the Toronto Blue Jays. Would you advocate it being replace the Rogers Center, build it right on top? Some people are talking about building it beside it concurrently. Some people are saying, why are we squeezing it downtown? Let's go into suburbs. We got space, Downsview Park or wherever. Where would you advocate the new stadium be down the road? I probably didn't appreciate as much what it was going to do to the downtown core when we built it the first time. You know, I probably would have loved one of those facilities out out in the outer part of the city. Although the city's come, it's, everything's a lot closer now than it used to be. It doesn't it doesn't seem quite as remote. Having 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 been not been downtown a lot in recent times, I was down probably at the end of November for a function, and trying to drive downtown was was not an experience that I really was anxious to do again. So, um, you know, it's going to depend a lot on public transit to get there, continuing to enhance that. But there's just so many people and it just was always a great hub for the, for the go train and the subway and everything that, that really made it possible for us to, to have the kind of crowds that we had. And I, and I, 
would believe that can continue to happen. It's still, you know, still an exciting place to be around. Whenever you're downtown and there's a game on, there's a real energy, you know, obviously with all the other sports teams for the most part being in the area. Um, I, I, it's just the price of real estate downtown is just so expensive to do that. I mean, the idea that there was, as I understand, the concept that was going to be kind of build it in stages and, and, and really build a lot of commercial development around it made a lot of sense. And uh, it's a huge price tag, but um, somebody's got to decide whether it was worth it. And I guess coming out of COVID, it decided that probably wasn't the best time to be doing it. Yeah, certainly. And it, it harkens back. I do want to ask you one more about the, the uh, glory days at Exhibition Stadium. You talk about the excitement of being downtown today with everything People are living downtown, working downtown, post-pandemic, they're coming back to work. I wonder during the days at Exhibition Stadium, when you had the CNE running, Ontario Place kind of in its heyday, and the Blue Jays, the Argos at Exhibition Stadium, was that just, what do you remember about those exciting times? Would they feed into each other, or did it become a logistical nightmare trying to have baseball games while the CNE is going on, Ontario Place? I didn't find the CNE was too bad. I mean, the one that was a bit more challenging was the Indy when they started the Indy races and we were having to, our parking lot was blocked off and we were trying to, you know, we basically tried to schedule outside of it. But uh, but just for us to work there was was not easy to get to and from the uh, our, our parking or get to our offices during during the Indy. Um, I mean, that was for a week, basically. Uh, the CNE, I didn't mind as much. The Argos were, you know, uh, you know, I have to say it was the crowds weren't anything like ours, uh, so it wasn't really a function of them being disruptive at all for us. But uh, um, no, I mean, it was it just, you know, it was always a challenge there. It, it seemed inevitable that you would have your biggest crowds of the year. So the Boston Red Sox in June and you'd have a rain out. You'd have a three hour rain delay because we had those, in those days, you know, you know, you had rain checks, basically. So you didn't want to give up the game. You wanted to make sure that you somehow finished the game so you didn't have to give out all of these coupons effectively for another game. Um, and so, we, you know, that was always, it didn't seem like the best customer service in those days because <laughs> of the weather. So it was always nice at the Sky Dome to be, have that option to kind of close the roof in 20 minutes if uh, things really turn nasty in a hurry on you. So What a change. And I do recall. I do recall having to have. I think we had somewhere like a six-minute rain delay and an eight-minute rain delay during my time. So, but otherwise, <laughs> the three hours we used to put fans through back in back at Exhibition Stadium was not was not fun. But uh, it was great. You know, I mean, on a sunny day you're out there. It was fabulous. It could be a great place to sit and watch a game in, a, in good weather, and it could be the worst place to be when the wind's blowing <laughs> off the lake and it was it was hailing and raining and whatever the snowing and whatever the case is. But. Absolutely. Bob, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, 18 years with the Blue Jays, you kind of saw big changes. Of course, winning breeds not only more fans, but players wanting to come play for the Blue Jays. But in that time you're with them, did you see a big change in how easy or not easy, difficult, it was to get players to come play for Toronto? Did they want to come to Canada? And how difficult was it to explain that Toronto is a real city? with real first world amenities and you will not be any different than playing here or there other than the taxes, of course. What was your experience and how did that change over your time with the Blue Jays in attracting free agents? Uh, well, I remember us working on some free agent deals that we couldn't, we couldn't close. Cause I think that, you know, they were, uh, I remember us going after Bruce Suter, remember him. And, uh, I just remember that's just not an interest. The taxes were an issue. Um, uh, eh, probably not knowledge of the city. I mean, part of it was, People wanted to be seen by their families wherever they're playing. The TV wasn't giving the Blue Jays much of a 
much of a much exposure and so that became a, a difficult thing for uh, the cross-border thing was certainly a bit of an issue for them and i don't don't think they really saw toronto as a as as an option i think we were always being played off against somebody else who wanted to they wanted to boost their salary so they used toronto for mark for negotiating uh leverage i i always felt that the and and again the all-star game might have been one of those turning points i never really thought about it that's where you invited the whole baseball community to your city they suddenly got to and we had a phenomenal weather that weekend and um and then we had people entertain on the island. You know, we had a lot of things around the city. Um, you know, we had a new stadium that opened. That was in obviously the 89 when we opened the Sky Dome. That changed everything. It's pretty hard to recruit people to Exhibition Stadium. <laughs> yeah. The rooms were pretty pretty sad. And then obviously the, just the facilities for, for somebody would not be great. But so certainly the new stadium and then, then the All-Star Game, I think were two great things. And then see the success of the team for, at that point, 11 years running and and as I say, probably should have been in the World Series a couple more times, and then we were even. Um, but we were certainly on on the on the cusp of of success back in the mid mid late eighties. Well, as you say, during your time, these big things—the '89 stadium opening, the '91 All Star Game, and the festival which you directed and really exposed, as you say, Toronto to the wider sports world. But the biggest and biggest '92, '93 back to back championships. Bob, what are your kind of biggest memories of that time? I remember it being, uh, 92, I remember it being a lot of work. We were trying to get ready for it. We were, you know, I, I was kind of working with the, our various teams on putting together all of the, uh, obviously the ticket sales side of it, the presentation side of it, the hospitality side of it, that there's a lot of that behind the scenes things that you do. And I just remember being pretty consumed with that. Obviously, we took all our staff to the first two games in Atlanta for the World Series, um, which might not have been a great trip until Eddie Sprague hit a home run that kind of brought us back into the series after game two. And so it was a great, great flight home after that. Uh, We went back for game uh, six, a select group of us. So we got to go back. And so that was... I remember that moment. I remember that obviously that 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 last out um, and and the the throw to throw to from Timlin to uh, to Carter was kind of like it was like in slow motion, and you just never thought he was going to beat it out. Are you going to get? And then when it was, and then you just suddenly realized it took it took a few seconds to suddenly realize that we finally had done this. We finally had had achieved the goal, and uh, it was a really special moment. It was probably one of the great nights. We remember having an organizational party uh, to celebrate until the very early hours of the morning, um, not having a lot of sleep and getting on a plane and flying back to Toronto and then eventually going on to Ottawa and then really doing and seeing later going back to see the, to the White House. It was uh, it was really a great time, uh, although that fall was really special. But, you know, it was uh, we had a great team. You felt like we were going to win and it just had it put a really good quality you know it made a bunch of changes and, and really turned us into a into a force and um and it was amazing how you could retool the whole team differently the next year and it was a very different looking we wanted it a different way rather than through pitching really through hitting but um it, it, was, it was incredible times i think the one thing i, I did vow i remember telling this to uh telling this to one of my board members that i said you know i felt like i had spent a lot of time just on the the, the work around and I didn't feel like I really got to enjoy it. I said, if we get back in this thing next time, I'm going to enjoy it. Make sure I really enjoy this world series. And thankfully we got back the next year and then, and uh, 
uh, I remember going out on the field after the game was over and, and a bunch of us celebrating out on the field. And anyway, I, I remember our board member said, did, did you get to enjoy it? And I said, yes, this one I got to enjoy. Well, you can never take anything for granted. And Bob, you were lucky enough, as you say, to realize I got to make sure to smell the roses and you got that chance to smell the roses. Hey, Toronto, the GTA and parts beyond. Sign up for a subscription box from the Henderson Brewing Company, where every month you will get the special seasonal release, plus three other unique tap room only beers mailed anywhere in Canada. Available in four, six or 12 month subscriptions. These packs are great for any beer lover, including yes yourself. Order now at hendersonbrewing.com or visit their tap room and retail store at 128A Sterling Road along the West Toronto Railpath. Henderson Brewing and the Toronto Legends Podcast, a great local partnership. In 1994, the Blue Jays' parent company, TSN Labatt Breweries, bought the CFL's Toronto Argonauts for almost $5 million from Bruce McNall, Wayne Gretzky, and the estate of John Candy. Concurrent with your baseball duties with the Blue Jays, you are now also named the president of the Toronto Argonauts. During your time with the Argonauts, back-to-back Grey Cups, 96 and 97, what was your experience like running the Argos, and how different uh, was that kind of transition in skills? You're working with the Blue Jays, now you're working with the Argos. Yeah, I I had, I mean, it it took on on a much smaller scale, uh, a different set of, a different set of responsibilities, you know, up to that, up my Blue Jay duties really revolved around the business side and to help uh, support the baseball side as much as I uh, could. But here it was trying to make, you know, football decisions in addition to business decisions as it related to the team. So a different, different set of, uh, different set of challenges. I think the one thing I found, um, Andrew was, and as I reflect back on this, is the the disappointment I had, as I said, growing up being an Argo fan, being very passionate about about the team, um, having been a season ticket holder for a long time, actually, and came back was a season ticket holder in the early years, and McNall bought the team as well. And um, to see, I'll put it this way, the apathy in the marketplace for the team was was really draining, and it was disappointing knowing how how passionate the Toronto fans had been in decades before, and now this is sort of where we were. So, I mean, we tried our best to be to do what we could in the marketplace. We we struggled with the beginning times with this U.S. expansion strategy that the league had um, that took full force. Took really took full force in '95, but '94 we had a bit of it, and so for me it was sort of I kind of threw myself all into it. I guess Paul sort of um, had me work exclusively on the Argos in 95. Um, and I came back to my dual role in 96. But so I've, I had a chance in 95. And I think we tried to, th- but we were we were facing like, you know, going to Shreveport to see fo- to play football. And people in the U.S., as much as they thought they were going to love football in any form, really never adapted to uh, to the Canadian game, didn't quite understand it and had this bigger field and which in itself was a real challenge for a number of the u.s partners because i know i remember going to the the liberty bowl in memphis to play against the memphis team and i mean they had to put you know i had to expand the width of the field because it's an extra 12 yards wider and uh deeper end zones and of course they already had an artificial field so they had to add grass around and it was just the most bizarre looking thing and people it didn't give any credibility to the league and I think thankfully we pushed for the experience of getting back to um, getting back to the an all Canadian league in '96. The interesting part for me was going through 
in 95, a very difficult year. It was a very bad year for the team. Um, I had relied on a general manager at that time for a decision around a coach who was a rookie coach. And probably I'd be very skeptical of hiring a rookie coach in the future, but it, mm-hmm. it certainly caused me to take, to pause and really reflect on, on, on that. It's a, it's a difficult role to throw somebody into, especially in a team. Especially when we were playing in a, a, not really on a level playing field, we were playing against American teams that had no Canadian players on their team where we were mandated to have a number of Canadian players. I, I really enjoyed the experience. All that, I, again, I, I really liked the players. They were down-to-earth guys. They obviously don't enjoy the salary benefits that, that the, the bigger leagues enjoy. Um, and they're playing much for the love of the game and um, and to keep their career going. So I, I was very fortunate. I, I have a lot of good friends from those days in the, in the, in the CFL, and um, I really enjoyed that time. Winning, of course, makes it a lot feel a lot better. <laughs> yeah. Say, you know, and we really um, – brought in a coach who I think who had proven he could win just about everywhere he went, Don Matthews and uh, Don put that together. You know, I worked with, uh, I go to the league in Calgary. We negotiated a trade for Doug Flutie, which kind of helped bringing a, a perpetual or perennial all-star in. And I think Doug at the time was as funny as was, as reading some comment that he wrote recently, because the negotiations seemed to take forever to get resolved. And I could never understand. Well, meantime, his agent was out there trying to get him a job in the NFL. And that was why they kept stalling us. But eventually he, he agreed to come and it was we were great for us. Um, it's just unfortunate he is not the quarterback we could have had for five or 10 years. And yeah, built something here to have him come and go after two years um, was 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 unfortunate. But great years while he was here. Great collection of players around him as well. It wasn't just Doug. And uh, felt really good in Hamilton in, I guess, November of 96 to win a great cup in the snow. That was one of my favorite moments of time, walking through the snow as the game. It was fabulous, fabulous game. Another classic great cup. You know, we um, we enjoyed and we hung on and won that one. So, no, I enjoyed that. But then, like many things, the team, you know, teams tend to turn over very quickly in the CFL. And... And, you know, you don't have players on long-term contracts for the most mm-hmm. part. And so Doug left and a bunch of other people changed. And suddenly in 98, you know, we went back to being a 500 club and struggling again and never really got past the first round of the playoffs after that for the rest of my time there. But still, experience that I really enjoyed. And But it was a challenging few years working both with the Jays and with the Argos the last part of the 90s, which... Uh, uh, my wife likes to constantly remind me how little I was at home during. <laughs> well, you certainly had a lot of winning and you had a lot on your plate to handle. Bob, I wanted to ask you in particular about in 95 and 97, it was called the uh, Toronto American Bowls, uh, and you were involved with this. And I mean, this is a theme that has been in Toronto forever. Is an NFL team going to be here? Is the NFL coming? What's the effect going to be on the CFL? First, I want to ask you about those American Bowls because this was pre uh, this kind of Bills Toronto sharing agreement between uh, Ralph Wilson and Ted Rogers. What was your uh, memories and recollections of those first American Bowls? Well, I'm, 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 a, I'm a big football fan generally, so a big NFL fan. And, um, and so I enjoyed being part of those. Um, there's certainly, as you say, that this, is, this has been an ongoing theme. People have wanted to bring the NFL team here since the 70s. And um, or the Northmen came in, I guess, when they. But uh, uh, anyway, the um, this was this was something that we really kind of inserted ourselves into. It was more of a Skydome NFL deal, but we've inserted ourselves as the operator because we felt like we didn't want to 
we wanted to control the one make sure we had a say at the table around around the presentation given that it was you know we it was a competing product coming into our building it was it was interesting i had i got to enjoy working with you know the a number of the teams and just seeing how they operated and the level of professionalism and the attention to detail was uh, in some cases very well they were very different amongst the teams themselves uh the dallas cowboys were incredible in terms of their attention to detail and how you know there was they were they were always thinking a step ahead. They were made, you know, you always had five more notes than you had about what they had to, what had to get done. So they were, they were challenging to work with, uh, but they respected what we did with them in the end. And then and obviously reflected a bit, certainly reflected on their success on the field back in the, those, those, those teams of theirs in the mid nineties. And the bills were a little, a little looser, frankly. And it just kind of a little bit reflected maybe the way their style and that's changed. I'm sure over time, the Packers were a classic, classy organization, got to deal with them and I actually became a Packers fan after my experience with them. And, you know, Brett Favre and, uh, and Mike Holman are really, really good people to work with. And um, and so, yeah, I became a bit of a Packers fan. I'd gone back there later in the year and uh, got to enjoy one of the sitting in on one of their practices. And uh, and so I really, really connected with the team. And and uh and so i've been sort of rooting for them my son grew up rooting for them as well so we've been dying we've been dying this year watching this team but <laughs> normally it's, it's been tough it's over there for sure of years but it's been tough this year in particular but uh well, those are good experiences and i you know we still so we did you know we didn't had great success obviously the marketplace was was showed that they were excited about the nfl it's still uh it still has to be proven they can sell it out but if it's your own team, it's a different story. It's hard to think about just selling other teams in this marketplace. I was involved as well in the Bills Toronto series for a period of time that that came later. And again, it was um, it was tough bringing other teams in. I think just on an exhibition, particularly in an exhibition, although the Bills series had some regular season games in it as well. Yeah. Oh, I'm with you. I think it makes a big difference when it's your hometown team. If you ask ten people, any ten people, five of them are going to say. We are going to see an NFL team in Toronto. Five of them are going to see it's never going to happen. But you are uniquely positioned, Bob. I'm going to put you on the spot. Are we going to get an NFL team in Toronto and in my lifetime? <laughs> How long are you planning to live for? <laughs> I'm going to go as I'm going to go as long as I can. Okay. You know, I I think we felt in '95 we felt we were really close that that this was going to happen. It started to drift away, and I think by the Bills series, I think you know the Rogers had thought about, you know, they were going to be a player in this, and and I think they were convinced it was going to happen. Phil Lind was was has been a you know had been behind the scenes working on this for a while, and so was anxious that this would be the first step in it. I, I think as the series went on, that didn't prove to be true, and I think the efforts to try to bring the when there was discussions around. Uh, what was going to happen to the Bills um, after Ralph Wilson passed away? That you know, it, it didn't move, and I don't. And I certainly think, based on the success of their team these days, and not not coming back, coming to Toronto anytime soon. Were there other franchises? Yeah, I think there was a lot. There was a couple others that people were exploring and really thought there was opportunities. I, you know, I've done some work with NFL Canada for a while. I know that they've obviously kept it on their radar that that might be a, a team come to might move here. I, I, it really comes down to the stadium. I mean, the, the numbers have just gone through the roof, and um, I don't know how you can afford an NFL stadium. And, in, 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 you know, when you look at what Denver what Denver went for recently, and, and I don't know how that ever happens, that people are going to commit those kinds of funds. 
or some portion of them to get get the team here and, and control the team unless unless you're going to build it for an owner to bring his team here that would be but then building the stadium is not exactly i don't know where that where that fits into you know this in this in this city well it's going to be an ongoing question and debate it'll always go on in the meantime as you say the bills are having a great season we can continue to not only call them our team but <laughs> cheer them on in the meantime well you know finally they're a team that's worth really getting excited about you know it's been a, it's been a while so the last absolutely years, last couple of years have been really exciting to watch them in 2002 you became chief financial officer of the montreal expos and a very interesting time, obviously, because in 2004, they moved from Montreal to Washington, were renamed the Washington Nationals to start the 2005 Major League Baseball season. It was the first time a Major League Baseball team had relocated since 1972. So many questions and so many issues around this. Uh, what do you kind of want to put out, Bob, as the kind of summary of, of, of that time? And were these totally new skills you had to develop or were you shocked by anything in the process? Um. I, I probably, um, as I say, when I reflect back as on my Argo, first Argo experience and how feeling, suddenly feeling the apathy for the, for the product, that was the next sort of feeling I got about the Expos as well. It was, it was so sad to come in and see a building with 6,000 people in it, you know, on a, on a pretty well night after night basis. Usually it had to be some ticket sale promotion to get anybody, anything over 10,000 people in the building. And even the very last game of the season didn't really, you know, there was a lot of people there, but it was not like there was, there was the build, every seat was full in the building. So I think it had, it had the chance to rejuvenate the team may have passed when they didn't complete that stadium. The, you know, there'd been the discussion of the new downtown stadium. I'd seen where it was going to be located. It wasn't, it wasn't as a few blocks from where the bell center basically, um, Later on, where we had some temporary office space in Montreal, we could look down at where the site was, and I watched them building condos there, townhouses, and it was like, uh, that's where it might have been. But I don't, you know, and it's, it's certainly enjoyed success when the Jays went back there, and the people showed that there's there's still interest in baseball there. Um, there was a great group promoting it in, in conjunction with the Jays. Um, but it, that was a sad part of, for me, I think, Andrew, was just, you know, a, a proud franchise, you know, having seen it on TV as, as Canada's first baseball franchise, having gone there with when the Expos, we played the Pearson Cup games between Montreal and Toronto, um, and to see it, it sort of fade, especially, and they all reflect back on what could have been that August of 94 when the strike happened and everybody there was feeling like, oh, we're, we're destined to win a World Series. And I hate to burst their bubble because I said, I've been through this experience and uh, your your lead in August doesn't mean anything. First of all, whether you're going to clinch the division or whether you even if even if you do, whether you're going to actually win the World Series. But it's certainly they had a great team that year that had a chance. Um, and that, that's sort of there for them was kind of the final straw and just didn't happen. And I think then the team didn't kind of come back after the strike the same way. And and as a sort, they, they, they just sort of faded. So. I felt could it have been done better? I, I don't know. I wasn't close enough to the situation, um, but it was still an uphill battle um, to really make it a solid front. And, and the cost of you really need bigger revenue streams in Montreal could generate um, in those days, anyways. Having said all that, a lot of Montrealers, including my wife Vicky, are angry that the Expos left Montreal. Is there a villain for my wife to direct her anger at, or is it just it's the marketplace? It's business is business. 
Well, you know, off the top of the show, you described me as the one selling the club, so I thought you were painting me as the villain and all. <laughs> I wouldn't be. I'm more. just the paid villain, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I don't want to point fingers at who could have done what in the past. I mean, I've heard various stories, and I say it wasn't that close enough to it in terms of previous owners and what they might or might not have done to, to continue to build on it. Um, it can be a very fragile state, but one of the things that could get turned around um, and, and especially with revenue sharing, you had a chance to, to make, uh, to have an investment to, to support clubs. Now, the challenge they faced was that they were by far the largest drawer of revenue funds source, you know, the funds from the revenue pool, the shared revenue pool. And they were, uh, and so I know at one point, a fairly significant owner of a team in New York once said that he thought he could draw the, his, he could identify that where his funds went because he paid out the same amount as another franchise was receiving. So he figured he was directly subsidizing one club, which I think was un, obviously an unfair way to portray it. But, uh, um, you know, I, I could there have been, I, I just don't really know, but is there a villain in this? I, I, I would hate to say it. it's, it happened over a, a lot, a lot of years and, and a lot of decisions and a lot of things that happened that, that kind of led to it and just slowly kind of led sort of had a slow death, I think. And, and there, there really wasn't anything left when we moved, frankly. So, well, I think you'll find it interesting today. Suddenly there's another, a new fresh drum beat for baseball coming to Montreal. I think the Tampa owner, I think, you know, he probably used it just as leverage, but they were talking about sharing games between Tampa and Montreal, which sounded a little crazy, but there's a lot of noise around we should have a team come back. So again, I'll put you on the spot, Bob. Do you think Montreal will get a Major League Baseball team back? And and, and should they, or is it just the economics don't work? You know, I, I, I'm, I've been out away from the game for a while now, so I really can't probably say what, what's required uh, in terms of resources. Um, you do need a significant buyer owner and the company that's going to support it. I think there's a there's a huge it's a it's a very passionate sports market and I think that opportunity so there's there, I think there's an opportunity. Uh, I'm skeptical whether it'll happen. I just you know we when we were in Montreal we were trying to stem some of the losses we were incurring. You know we moved games to Puerto Rico for you know for a couple of years, and that certainly helped bridge some of our finances. Now Puerto Rico looked at it as an opportunity to have the club move there. And in the end, we didn't move there. We didn't think it was the marketplace to move it. And, you know, that could be the same case with Tampa. They could share some games and then decide that it's not the place in the marketplace. But there were not a lot of market. There was, it, was, it was a struggle. There were not a lot of great marketplaces to move to. For, not to say we, there weren't other options, but there weren't a lot of, there wasn't a long list of places that you really could have moved. So um, I think Tampa still has some other options besides Montreal, but it's, it's not a long list. You uh, traded in your baseball glove once more for football. After a nine-year absence in 2009, you returned as team president of the Toronto Argonauts under owners Howard Sokolowski and David Cinnamon, who is also a Toronto legend, has been on this podcast. You got a great cup win, your third in 2012. How different were the Argos in your uh, second time with them? Well, we went through a lot of interesting times on the ownership front. I mean, I guess the one thing that marked my first uh, my first go around in the CFL was that it was it was stable ownership. You know, that Labatt was owning or sort of TSN slash Labatt were owning the team for the six years that I was involved. When coming back, you know, David and and Howard were really looking at transitioning out. Um, they they brought all of their creativity and passion and support to the 
theme and did some wonderful things. You know, won a great cup in 2004, brought the, the great cup to Toronto in 2007, you know, um, and, and, and so I think had found much as everybody else's that, you know, it still is a struggle at the end of the day and there's still money coming out of their pockets to continue to subsidize the club. So they had looked to transition it to, to David Braley. Um, and so I was kind of in the middle of that when, when I came in, that was, that process was sort of ongoing. Uh, I was kind of basically hired by all of them collectively between David and between Howard and, 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 and David, the other day, David Cinnamon. Uh, and, and so that was a, that was an interesting time. We had started the season again with, uh, an American coach who really didn't understand our game. And it was, it was a very, it was much like my 95 experience with, you want to call it a rookie CFL head coach. In this case, he was a veteran NFL coach, but it was, it was, there was a loss. There was credibility loss with the players. And eventually we had to, we had, we lived out the season with him because he brought a lot of his NFL uh, associates with him, again, who were not really tied into the CFL game. So it was a bit of a rebuilding exercise for me in 2010, um, bringing in Jim Barker and, and a new coaching staff. And, you know, we probably never had that marquee quarterback like um, like we had uh, in, with Doug Flutie, and that's always the key to winning things in the CFL. But we had a credible team, and... We couldn't get past Anthony Calvillo in that year to get to the Grey Cup, but um, but anyway, we were in the final, in the Eastern final. The uh, I think what the exciting thing for me about that was that we and, and really ten and eleven is that we brought in two uh, two players as coaches in those days. You know, uh, Orlando Steinhauer and and Mike O'Shea, uh, who were their first coaching jobs, and uh, they were a treat to be around. I think we both Jim and I both recognized that they were going to be guys that were going to have a role in the future. And so, you know, for me, it's been great. Probably one of the great pleasures I've taken from that stint was bringing those guys in and then seeing their success in in the league and to see Orlando take the Ticats to the great cup a year ago. And then Mike being in the great cup now for three in a row kind of thing in Hamilton and Winnipeg and turning that franchise around and suddenly being the powerhouse in the CFL. So I really feel great about that. We never got that quarterback. I, I, in 2012, I finally made a trade with Edmonton for Ricky Ray, who was a quarterback that had created problems for us during the year. It's always guys that really create problems for us, I find, that I enjoy getting back on our team. So Ricky was one of those guys, and Flutie had done that to us, and now Ray. So it was nice to get those guys back on our side. So Ricky came in and to, you know, in the offseason, coming into the 2012 season, um, we had brought in uh, a new coach, which I'd been trying to uh, trying to recruit for a while. So I think between setting the team up for that was sort of my, I guess, my swan song for the for the CFL at that point. And I didn't, I wasn't there for this whole season. But uh, anyway, I got to, I got to put the pieces in place that went on to win a Grey Cup. So I don't wear that Grey Cup ring because I wasn't there at the end to uh, to see us win. Or to, well, I was there to see us win, but I wasn't there part. I wasn't on the. I wasn't part of the team that won, um, but I got to enjoy it from the stands, and uh, it was very exciting to see them, the team come back and, and win the 100th Grey Cup. And then, of course, the Argos back again this year, so they're back to their winning ways. They've won two Grey Cups in 17 and 22 that nobody gave them much chance to win, and they found a way to win. So, Well, I appreciate your time greatly. I want to close with some loose items. Is Pinball Clemens the nicest man in the world? <laughs> Well, I, I don't know if he's the nicest guy, but he's got to be in the top three anyway, so there you go. 
how often do you get emails and misdirected mail for Bob Nicholson, the former CEO of Hockey Canada and the current Edmonton Oilers executive? Um, I, I don't know if I've got an exact number of that, but there's been quite a few over. I think the most amusing thing was, uh, uh, was I had been working at a company, doing some consulting with a company where actually Bob's daughter was working at as an intern. And so she had me in her contacts and she reached out to her father about some success that the women's uh, hockey team had when, and he was congratulating him on it. And I said, I had to tell her that she got the wrong she had to get the wrong Bob Nicholson as well. So that was probably my highlight of uh, misdirected emails. No misdirected checks, though. Eh? You've never gotten a, a... That would have been nice. <laughs> uh, uh, I want to ask about your pivot. Getting Olympic gold medals. I know. <laughs> yeah, that too. I want to ask about your pivot to education. Why don't you tell us what you're working on today at Holy Trinity School? Yeah, so it's a school that I was very familiar with. I had uh, had been a parent there. My, two of my kids were were there involved there. I was on the board of directors for a number of years. Did some consulting work after I left the board, and uh, they had an opportunity. I've been doing some consulting work, but it just they had an opportunity to come up and kind of trying to run their the business side of the school. And I was uh, it was just the right time for me again. Just it worked out, and so probably wasn't sure how long I'd be there, but I've been there six years now, so. Uh, I've enjoyed it. I think what I've liked about the the education world is um, is that people bring the same kind of passion to their job every day um, that we uh, that, that I saw working in the world of sports. That you know, people really enjoy being uh, contributing to uh, the growth of young people and seeing them succeed. And and, uh, and so, for me to be around educators has been uh, has been a blessing and. Uh, I've enjoyed that and tried to bring what little skills I can to uh, to the to the school and uh, haven't any won any championships because of me. I have to say at any of our sports teams. But anyway, so no slowing down for Bob Nicholson. No, we'll keep going. Well, great. It's been great to to get to know you and hear all your stories. And uh, I want to wish you continued success. Thank you, Andrew. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you this morning. It's been my pleasure. And to the listeners, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends podcast, powered by Henderson Brewing Company. And on behalf of Bob Nicholson, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. Hi, I'm Emily Roger. And I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. Hi, I'm Mercedes Nickel, four-time Winter Olympian and host of Dropping In, a podcast with Mercedes. This is a podcast where I interview a bunch of different people. I get the good, the bad, and the ugly, as well as I share my stories along the way. Now you can drop in at droppingin.com or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. I'll see you soon.